have a copy of God's Word, turn to Luke chapter 15. Those of you, again, watching online, we're so happy to have you. And some of you may not know this, but we're actually on the radio. We're on AM 1400 at 1 o'clock on Sundays, and then also on, the, on Wednesdays at 4 o'clock. And so we invite you, if you know somebody, this is the same message, but you can have them and come be a part of this. So Luke chapter 15, and we're all in the room here are going to stand and as we read God's Word in Luke 15, verse 25. And if you're online and you want to stand as well, uh, maybe you're in bed, you can uh, get out of bed for a moment uh, before you go to sleep. All right, verse 25. The Bible says, Jesus says, in the middle of a story, now his older brother was in the field, and as he came and drew near the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked, what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he had received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, look these many years I have served you and I've never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you've killed the fattened calf. And he said to him, his father, son, you're always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. You may be seated. I have three kids, Aaron, Andrew, and Anna. They are absolutely awesome kids. And, you know, uh, they are all, the older that they get, they are all distinct. You can have uh, kids living in the same house, same parents, taught the same values, and yet as they get older, you see how different they are. I think about even myself and my sister. Uh, we are, she, my sister is four years older than me, and I remind her of that constantly. Uh, she crossed over the 40 mark uh, four years ahead of me. Uh, crazy how that works. And, and I let her know about that. But she's totally different than me. You know what? She is a Pepsi drinker. Yes, that's what I say too. She doesn't like eating dessert. I am a Coca-Cola person, and I could eat dessert for dinner. Amen? But isn't it amazing? You can live in the same house have the same parents, be taught the same values, but be diametrically different. Well, here in this story that Jesus tells of the lost son, we see two brothers that live in the same house, have the same parents, but are two totally different people. Now, last week we looked at the younger son. Today we're going to be looking, focusing on the older son. But we notice here that if you just compare, one was a free spirit and the other was a nerd. One was a party animal, the other was a workaholic. One was respectful, the other was reckless. One was self-indulgent, the other was self-righteous. One was rebellious, the other was religious. And so as we look here at this, probably one of the most famous parable stories of Jesus, it's, which is his longest story, the parable of the prodigal son that many of you kind of know it by, it is a, a, a story that many of us just focus on the younger brother, but I believe what the text shows us is that there wasn't just one lost son, but there were two lost sons. And so last week in Act 1, we saw that the younger son's rebellion was no match for the father's grace, that where sin runs deep, God's grace runs deeper. Well, here in Act 2, we learned that Jesus who is responding primarily to the religious leaders, is, knows how to respond to the religious, and he invites them to abandon their religion and trust in him. Now, Jesus in this story is 
primarily speaking to the audience, which was the scribes and the Pharisees, those who were trying to earn God's favor, earn God's approval by following the law and by keeping the commandments. And so some of us this morning, we may completely just turn this off, but I want you to understand that I think that Jesus here in this story is speaking directly to the Pharisee in all of us. So we're going to look at it two ways. One, we're going to look at the religious son, and then we're going to look at the responsive father. So let's hear the religious son. In verse number 25, the Bible says here where the older son was. So the younger son had just been out partying, living high, wide, and handsome, and then he goes through this famine, and he's completely broke, and, and he, he then returns home, and the father receives him, and now there's a party. And then the older brother, while this is going on, the Bible says that he was in the field. Now, why is he in the field? Well, because the younger brother had left town and shamed the family. The older brother had to pick up the pieces and carry the slack. He had to work overtime in the field to make up for his brother's irresponsibility and his brother's reckless living. He had to protect the family honor and he had to prolong the family's future because the younger brother had just literally squandered one-third of the family's wealth. So in verse 26 and 27, the Bible says that he came near the house and he heard music and he heard dancing. The house was a rockin' and it was a Tuesday. And he's like, it's Tuesday. Normally, it's Taco Tuesday, but instead, it looks like it's Cinco de Mayo in the house. There's a party that's going on. So he's walking alongside. He sees the party that's, that's happening. He talks to a servant. In the Greek, it's a young servant, a young boy. And he asks him, hey, what's going on? And the young servant says, hey, your, your brother who had been out in rebellion, he has come home safe and sound, and your father has killed the fattened calf. Now, what do you think the older brother's response is? Wow, that's awesome. I've been waiting to eat that fatted calf for a long time. We're going to have Texas Day Brazil here at the father's house. But instead of being excited, he is angry. In my mind, it's kind of like he's sitting there thinking, the fatted calf. I mean, we've been saving that sucker for a special occasion, and the last guy in the entire world who deserves to have the fatted calf killed for him would be that loser. And so the Bible says that he refused to go in. Now, why did he refuse to go in? Because I think that he did not want to be a part of the celebration, obviously. He didn't want to condone the actions of the brother, and, and he was just completely angry. He's furious. And so the Bible says that his dad comes outside to talk to him. Now, for the older brother to refuse to enter into the party was a personal insult to the father. It would be public rebellion. And I think that probably if many of you have been a part of family reunion scenes or if you've had family get-togethers, we've all kind of seen those awkward, weird moments where one family member is mad at another family member and there's a tussle and somebody plays peacemaker. Well, here, the father plays peacemaker and he's trying to reconcile the two brothers together. Now, here's something you need to understand technically. Technically, everything in the house was legally the property of the older brother, even the fatted calf. Now, the father had authority... But the real ownership was the, the, the older brother. And so the older brother here in verses 29 and, 20 and 30 unloads on his dad. He tells his dad all the pent-up frustrations that he has in this whole situation. Maybe up until this point he has been a good son. He's never said a word, but now he's going to completely unload. And he says, Dad, I've been a good son. I've never caused you a moment of grief. I've obeyed you. I've honored you. I've never done anything like that, fool. I've always done what is right, and now, of all the moments when I should deserve a party, 
when that son of yours who he doesn't even call his brother who had ruined your life father who had wasted your money and slept around with God only knows who you give him the fatted calf the son here is completely angry why is he angry he has a self-righteous anger here it is a religious anger it is an anger that says I have been good and faithful and obedient and respectful and I and my worldview believe that goodness should pay off and it appears that in this moment everything that I have believed that if I'm a good son if I play by the rules if I do everything that's right that I will be rewarded and here it seems like that that's been turned flipped upside down that everything I have thought was it seems to be a mirage that I've been living for you father I've been serving you father I've been doing the right things father and here this is what I get this son of yours is now living high, wide, and handsome, squandering your money, ruining your reputation, bespurging your character. And so how in the, here in this moment, this anger comes out of him and he verbally insults his father right there in that moment. And the reason why is because he's religious. Now, what do I mean by religion? Religious people, religion, religion is man's attempt to please God man's attempt to get to God so if you have God on top of a mountain and you have man at the bottom of the mountain religion is man's attempt to get to the top of the mountain on his own that's what religion is and if you are a religious person you're going to feel a certain way about things you're going to see life and so here's how this young man feels this is his phariseeism that comes on full display because religious people one see their relationship with god like a servant or an employee that's how religious people view their relationship with god so you see this son saying i've served you all these years this is how he's viewed what it meant to be a son he was a servant here he, in this moment because he is a servant he is demanding his rights he says I have been a hard worker I have worked hard for you I have kept the family business going I have carried the slack for this these other people around me and, and I believe that I should be rewarded for my obedience I believe that I should be uh, honored for the efforts that I have made for this family and that's how religious people see their relationship with God not as a child but they see it as a servant you know one of the struggles that I have personally is the blurred line between being God's servant and God's child. Being God's servant is what I do for God. Being God's child is who I am in God. And as a pastor, as a, as a, as a minister, I clock in and, and I work hard and, and I do it for the boss that I love, but, but there's a time, there's tendencies in my moment that I tend to contaminate my identity in God with my work for God. Is it I begin to view my value in the eyes of God on the basis of what I do for God. But God doesn't view me on the basis of what I do for Him, praise God. Because it's not what I do for Him, it's who He says that I am. I am His child. And so as His child, he gives me good gifts, and he gives me these gifts not as reward for my service, but as a lavishing his grace as his child. But what we do is we blur the lines just like this older brother did. This older brother is going to see all that his younger brother gets, and he is going to resent his father's extravagance because he says in his heart, that boy doesn't deserve it. He didn't earn it. But as a son, what he should have done is he should have rejoiced seeing his other brother 
being returned, being found, being alive. But see, religious people see their relationship with God as a servant or an employee. But second, religious people believe that if you live a good life, then you deserve a good life. It's the carmenization of, of religion. That karma says that if you do good things, if you do good karma, then you get good karma. And if you do bad karma, you get bad karma. It's this whole understanding of reciprocity. So God owes good people a good life, and he owes bad people a bad life. And what happens is if you're a religious person and something bad happens in your life, you begin to think, well, God, what did I do? I, I don't deserve what's going on. And so your result, your response is when something bad happens in your life is you get angry at God and you say, God, why would you allow this bad to ever happen to me? I've served you. I've lived for you. I've done all these things for you. And now you, let, you give me this. And I know many of you say, man, I can't believe somebody would think that way. But if we're honest, we all do. We all struggle with this. We all struggle in believing that if we do good, we, do, we should get a good life. And so what happens is that, is that if it doesn't, we get angry at God. Or the second thing is that when life goes bad for religious people, they get confused, just like the younger brother or the older brother. And instead of getting angry at God, they do the opposite. They turn on themselves and they say, well, what did I do? And so they start just completely painstakingly doing inventory of their lives, looking for what flaw in their life, what sin in their life, what sin in their past did they do, what sin that they're thinking right now that has caused the pain and the, 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 the problems of their times. And, and they're torturing themselves and they're getting depressed thinking that they're horrible, self-loathing people because they don't see themselves as a child of God. They see themselves as a servant and as an employee of God. And what happens as a result of that is that religious people then start comparing. What does this guy do? The first, one of the first words he says to his dad is that, Dad, you've never done this for me. And you're going to do it for him? I've been good. He's been bad. And he gets the fatted calf, and I don't even get a young goat. He, he gets the gold mine, and Dad, all I get is the shaft. And what happens is he's comparing. And here's what I want you to understand, that when you compare, it will kill you. You'll either have a spirit of superiority or you'll have a spirit of inferiority. The interesting part of this thing is that this young man lived near his father's house, but he does not have his father's heart. He doesn't care. This brother is returned. He doesn't care of the celebration. Richard Lovelace said this. He said, people who are not sure that God loves and accepts them in Jesus apart from their present spiritual achievements are subconsciously, radically insecure persons. <clears throat> Let me unpack that for a second. If you're not sure of your standing with God, you're constantly insecure and therefore you're paranoid, and you're comparing yourself with other people. And you're insecure. He continues, he says, Their insecurity shows itself in pride, a fierce defensive assertion of their own righteousness, and a defensive criticism of others. They naturally come to hate other cultural styles and other races in order to bolster their own security and discharge their suppressed anger. That's what religious people do. And let's be honest, we all struggle with it. We all do. Because religious people don't find joy in serving. 
because the reason that religious people serve is not for the joy of the Father or the love of the Father, but it's out of duty. It's out of fear-based compliance. The older brother is going to boast to his father of his obedience, but his motivation wasn't because he loved his dad. It's because he ultimately thought that if he served his dad, he would get what is owed to him. Adrian Rogers said this, he says, a servant serves because he has to, an employee serves because he needs to, but a child of God should serve because he wants to. See, a child of God should serve for the joy of serving, not the fear of the consequences if he doesn't serve. It shouldn't be based out of anxiety, but it should be a, a type of obedience that's beyond rule keeping, but is genuine from the heart. Tim Keller, in his book, The Prodigal God, on this, it takes a whole, it's a great book. I, I encourage you to read it. It's on Luke chapter 15, particularly this parable. But he tells the story of a, of, a, of a guy who went to his king, uh, and he was a farmer. And he comes to his, uh, his king with an with a enormous carrot. And, and he comes into the court of the king, and he says, My lord, this is the greatest carrot I've ever grown, and it's the greatest carrot I will ever grow. And therefore, out of respect to you as a token of my love, I present you with this carrot. The king was so touched and so moved by this man's genuineness that he said to him, you know, sir, it seems that you are a good steward of the earth and I own a plot of land right next to yours and today I will deed it to you. I freely give it to you as a gift so that you can farm and garden all that land. And that gardener, that farmer was amazed and he was delighted and he went home rejoicing. And there was another man that watched the whole thing, a nobleman that was sitting there in the king's court. And he said to himself, he said, you know what? If that's what a person gets for a, giving a carrot to a king, what if I gave the king something better? So he came the next day with a purebred black stallion. And he came and he bowed low before the king. And he says, my Lord, I breed horses. And this is the greatest horse that I've ever bred and ever will breed. And I want to give this horse to you out of my love and respect for you. But the king discerned that man's heart, and he just said, thank you, and dismissed him. While the man was walking away, the king said, let me tell you something. The man turns around expecting to get something. And the king says, you know, that gardener was giving me the carrot, but you were giving yourself the horse. See, older brothers may do good for others, but not out of delight of doing the deed or for love of people or the pleasures of God. They are only doing those things for themselves. To be noticed, to be seen, to feel better about themselves, to relieve any guilt or shame or to overcompensate their own flaws or failures or to get the love of God and love from other people. Why? Because deep down, religious people question God's love for them. This older brother says, Dad... You did this for him, but you wouldn't do this for me. And in his heart, he's saying, this, this younger brother gets his inheritance early. He tears the family apart. He dishonors you, and you receive him back immediately, and you restore him, and you throw a party for him. And in his mind, he begins to look at all that, that the father is doing, and he says to himself, maybe the dad didn't love me ever. Maybe dad never did love me. Maybe he only loved the younger brother, maybe he's the golden child. And what happens when you get caught up in religion 
and you view your value and worth before God on the basis of what you do for Him, this will always be where you end up. Because the circumstances of your life may at times lead you to believe that God doesn't love you. A.W. Tozer said, don't get your theology from your circumstances because you may conclude that God doesn't love you. But get your theology from the Word of God and know that God does love you. So we see the religious son, but now the second, and it's not as long as the first, the responding father. I use that word particularly, on, I use it on purpose, the responding father. In verse 31, he says, son, you're always with me. All that is mine is yours. Now, I want you to notice, how does the father in this story respond to his son? He, he overlooks the son's bitterness and his arrogance and the distortion of facts and the accusations of favoritism. What he does is he responds. He doesn't react. He responds. When someone is upset at you and they come to you and they yell at you or they get in your face or they get mad and they get emotional, if you mirror their emotions, if you get mad, if you yell, if you threaten them. You're just reacting to them. Monkey see, monkey do. That's just what you do. That's what reaction is. Reaction is just mirroring what the other person is doing. Responding is actually finding a solution to the problem. The father here doesn't react. The father could have just put out his big self-righteous finger right back at his son and said, you ungrateful, knuckle-headed kid. But what does he do? He responds with love and compassion. He says, son, we don't get it in the English, but in the Greek, the word technon, it is an affectionate, loving word. He's saying, my buddy, my little buddy, my dear son, all that is mine is yours. You've always been with me. Don't worry, you've not lost anything. Everything that I have is yours. It's going to be okay. I love you. And then he says in verse 32, it is fitting to celebrate and be glad. He says, son, let go of your self-righteous anger and come celebrate with me because your brother was dead but now is alive. He was lost but now is found. Notice something in that text. When the older brother talks about the younger brother, he doesn't say he's my brother. He says he's your son. But the father here reframes it and says, no, he's not just my son. He's your brother. Do you, say, you catch that? What did I tell you a couple of weeks ago? We live in a world that's about us versus them, this, this dichotomy that we, the good people are us and the bad people are them. The whole media, social media, what's going on politically, what's going on culturally is an us versus them narrative. And what happens is, is that when, when we have an us versus them narrative, remember what I said, we dismiss people that are not like us and we demonize people that are like them and we dehumanize people. And what happens is, is that when you dehumanize people, you can say whatever you want about them. And you don't have to have any respect for them. And you can completely just say and do whatever you want to them. Well, here the father reframes. And he doesn't say, this is your son, my son. He says, this is your brother. And you should be excited that your brother is no longer dead, but that he's alive. Listen, church. We need to get back to the place where we don't just see people on the basis of the color of their skin or their political affiliation or even at times their theological beliefs, but we should see them as people made in the image of God who desperately need a Savior in their lives. And what I mean 
by all of that is that this us versus them narrative is what's tearing the world apart and sadly the church has fallen right into it. Theology matters. Doctrine matters. But to a lost person, it doesn't matter until they know Jesus, which is true theology. When they know that he is the way, the truth, and the life, that's what matters. And here, all this older brother can think about is that's what, that's your son, but he never thought of him as my brother. And the father here in this moment is saying this, I love your brother and I love you. And this is what tells me, this is what it tells me about God. See, God loves a rebel, but he also loves the religious. God loves the, the meathead, the crackhead, the dopehead, the metalhead, the, the crazy person, the pimp, the prostitute. He loves the addicts. But he also loves the religious, those that are self-righteous. He loves the lawbreakers and he loves the law keepers. He loves the prodigal and he loves the Pharisee. He loves the junkies and he loves the church guys. He loves Democrats and he loves Republicans. Why? Because both need grace. Both need grace. Both need the Father's invitation to come. Well, the story ends, but it, there's no resolution. We don't know what the older brother's going to do. It's kind of like when a, a show has been canceled. You get one season and that's it. We don't know what happens. There's no Paul Harvey telling us the rest of the story. We don't know how the older brother responds, but I think that Jesus here, whose audience are these religious older brothers, leaves the ending out so that these religious older brothers can provide their own ending. The question that the, the, the listener is left with is, will the older brother accept the father's invitation or will the older brother stand outside and refuse? And I think the question that Jesus is putting to these scribes and Pharisees is this, will you accept the father's invitation or will you stand outside in your self-righteousness? Now, here's what we know. The, younger's bro the younger brother's restoration was free to him, but it came to an enormous cost to the older brother. The father could not forgive the younger son without someone paying, and the person that would pay would be the older brother. But yet, in this story, we do not see a sacrificial older brother. And so it leaves the listener to long for a sacrificial older brother. And here's the good news. There is one. There is a true and better older brother. And he's the one telling the story. His name is Jesus. Jesus is the friend of the rebellious, but he never sins. And he's the friend of the religious, but he's not religious. And Jesus offers you, whether you're a rebel or religious, the invitation to forsake your rebellion or to forsake your religion and come and follow him. But the older brother, we don't know. We don't know. But what I'm saying is don't refuse the love of the Father. Don't think I'm too bad that God doesn't love me or don't think I'm too good that I don't need God's love. Find it in Jesus. Because what I'm afraid is that a lot of people in this world are killing themselves for nothing. On June the 12th of this year, 2020, 
Maybe you heard the story of a young man by the name of Alexander Kearns. He's from Naperville, Illinois. He's a 20-year-old college student with a promising future. His parents walked into his room and they found a note by his computer. It was a suicide note. He says in his note, the reason why he committed suicide is because he had taken up investing on an app on his phone called Robinhood. This is an app that is marketed towards millennials and Gen Zers to have uh, no fee trading. And he woke up one morning and he saw on his app that he had a negative balance because he was doing trades. He had no idea what he was doing. And he woke up and he saw a negative balance of $730,165. And he saw that. And he was completely devastated and completely scared, thinking that he had ruined his life and his family's life. And so he writes this note. And he says in the note, I had no idea. And he jumped in front of a train. Do you know what the problem was? The problem is that there was a glitch in the system that he did not owe $730,000. He didn't owe anything. He killed himself over a debt he did not owe at all. Well, let me tell you something. We all have a debt. A debt that in a million lifetimes we can never repay. It is our debt to God because of the sin we commit. One sin against an infinite God deserves an infinite punishment. But the sad news is that many people, billions of people, are killing themselves literally trying to pay that debt back to God. When instead, all they need to do is trust Jesus with it. Because on the cross, Jesus paid your debt in full paid it all. He paid a debt he didn't know. And you can receive grace you don't deserve. All you have to do is stop running, stop being religious, and trust in him. So the ending of this message is this. Will you remain outside the Father's house in your own self-righteousness? Or will you come in and experience his grace? Let us pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for your word. And God, whatever I may have said that was misspoken, God, I pray that you would take what you want to have said and have it said. And God, I pray for all of us who have the struggle of this inner Pharisee in us. God, will we have this notion that we have to try to earn your acceptance rather than just living it. And we look down on other people and we compare ourselves constantly. And we live in anxiety. God, help us today to not forget the gospel that we're not going to listen to our doubts, but we're going to preach to our doubts that you do love us. But God, I pray if there's anyone in this room or those online or those listening by radio who do not have a personal relationship with you, I pray, God, right now that they would not refuse to come in, but God, they would come into the Father's house by just putting their faith and trust in you. Father, would they in this moment pray a prayer like this? Lord Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. And 
God, I'm tired of trying to earn your love. So I just accept the fact that you accept me. I receive your acceptance. And I ask God that you forgive me of my sins and be the Savior and Lord of my life. Help me, God, to lay my life down at your feet. I believe that you died on the cross. I believe you rose from the dead. Save me. In Jesus' name, amen. If you prayed a prayer like that or you want to talk to somebody or you have a prayer need, or maybe there's a next step you want to take, you want to be involved in a group or you want to be baptized, I want to give you this number right now. Those of you in this room, those online, those listening on radio, 407-338-4024. You can just text in there your name. Please put your name and put what your prayer request is. Or, hey, I today trusted Jesus as my Savior. Or, I want to take a next step. Uh, maybe, maybe somebody this week, uh, we had one of our young people say they want to make a te- take a next step of being a missionary. And so they applied to the International Mission Board to be a journeyman. So we're praying for that person. God will give them wisdom. Whatever you're in, just text in. Thank you for listening to the Central Sanford Podcast. For more information or how to take your next step, visit us online at centralsanford.net.